Well, with the end of year in sight, it's quite a relief to manage to get back to where it all started in Steck. We've managed to hold five live evening events since the summer, one party and five dinners. On the 9th of November, we were supported by ISI and back up to full strength with over 200 people in the room again. The subject was the use of real-time data with a focus on claims and flood. We've mined the recording from that event for the highlights and insights, and you're going to be hearing from some old friends and some new ones. Now, one of the benefits of what we do at Instep these days is that we are talking to over 250 companies a month. We're meeting with both insurers as the users of technology and the technology companies that are driving innovation from the startups to the grown-ups all around the world. And our events reflect this too. This week, we have Beasley and Atrium on stage talking about how they are using data and who they are working with alongside some of the most interesting data and analytics solutions in this space. Well, if you're in the shrinking minority of companies that are not already working with us in some way and want to find out what you're missing, then please do track me down, Matthew Grant on LinkedIn or any of us via hello at instec.london. And if you are in London in December, could even meet up in person. Well, here we go with the recordings. First up on stage is Raphael Modreski, CEO and co-founder of ISI, and Lisa Wardlaw, Global Head of Insurance Solutions at ISI. The satellite, obviously, is a, is a mean to, to something, right? We, we consider it a, a piece of a tool or, or infrastructure. Now, the key is what it enables, and it, it enables gathering the type of information that it was completely impossible before. So imagine that we currently own a constellation of 14 of those satellites. If you were to pick a place right now, we would be able to be there within two hours, three hours, take an image, regardless whether that place is dark, whether it's night or day, whether it's, it's rainy or cloudy, or whatever weather conditions are over there, we can pierce through the darkness and we can pierce through the weather condition and we will actually be able to tell you within a few hours from your request what's going on on the ground. Once we gather that data, we can then convert it into intelligence and if it's flooding out there, we actually will be able to tell you what is the water extent and what is the water depth. And now, because we can be there so fast, that's the new real-time bit, we can provide you that information almost immediately after the event is taking place. So now you can communicate with your customers, you can deploy the resources more efficiently, you can, you can size the event loss, you can do all those things with the information which is an actual measurement of what's going on rather than with just a guess. And you can do it in near real time. How deep can you measure the depth of water to? Because clearly that's very critical from flood damage. We would say in statistical terms you'd have a mean of 30 centimeters. Uh, but you will, you will get in the tens of centimeters level, right? So you'll be able to differentiate whether it's a one foot, two feet, or three feet, or if you want to use. We've had some large events this year, Hurricane Ida. We had some big European storms. Once the claims adjusters came in and started to look at what the real losses were, how did you perform in terms of your initial views versus what ultimately was the experience? Yes, I, I can say it was surprisingly accurate. Uh, once we have, I mean, obviously it wasn't accurate to begin with. As anything in engineering, you know, it's not like the first satellite that we have built worked perfectly. We are probably on generation four now. But uh, once we have calibrated the system with the actual ground truth uh, that came from the claims adjusters, we were able to be very accurate, at least on the portfolio level. Yes, it, it can be very, very repeatable. And then, Lisa, a question for you from a sort of practicality point of view. 
for the insurers that actually want to use the data, how are they extracting the data that's coming down from your satellites? I like to tell people we meet you where your systems and your technology is, whether you are advanced and you may have geospatial systems that we can integrate with, or if you're on the middle of the spectrum and you need some sort of a data feed or something like that, or if you want something very, I'll call it static, and you want something as simple as an Excel CSV file. So we have a spectrum, just like all of you, and whether you're a technologist out there or you're an insurance company, we meet you where you are. Are you also capturing data before the event, and presumably things are changing anyway quite frequently with buildings and construction. There was a very interesting phenomenon we saw as, a, um, as Hurricane Ida unfolded, where there was a town in Louisiana for day one and day two where we literally saw no flooding. And so we've got, like a, I call it, you know, a consistent or a time series analysis of what happened. And then on day three, we actually saw this town flood. And uh, we were able to connect that back to a levee, a levee in the town of Louisiana that broke. So it was an infrastructure issue. So I think the change detection and, you know, persistent monitoring and then ultimately we'll, we'll, we'll build into these concepts called consistent um, monitoring, which think underwriting, think um, monitoring even when an event is not ongoing, are going to lead us into, especially with the, the impacts of climate change, a new realm of being able to monitor risk, almost like the concept of, of streaming. We'll be able to see risk and risk movement near real time. I think that's quite fascinating for our industry. You're also looking at observed data and data on the ground and other types of data that complements the, uh, what you're doing with the satellites. Is that right? We partner with and look at um, external data sources that complement our um, objective right now of catastrophe risk management and seeing the truth on the ground. So, for example, we're looking at things like maybe there's some sensors that can be put inside a home that could partner with our data. We use lots of river gauges. Well, you might be interested in our, in our remote claims assessment report coming out soon. Parametric, I know, is one of the areas you've been exploring. Just as we wrap up, anything you can talk about on that yet? Parametric, of course, is coming in at hopefully a, a trigger-based easy to pay, price affordable level. I think there will be hybrid products. So you've got indemnity, you've got parametric, and then I think the world will also start to create a hybrid mix of the two. But definitely see this fulfilling, this gap, getting people money in their greatest time of need. Rafael, Lisa, thank you very much for kicking things off. Great story. for having us. Thank you. Next up on stage was Forbes McKenzie, founder of McKenzie Intelligence Services which has just announced a partnership with iSight. If you want to hear more about what Forbes is doing and his background, then I do recommend my full interview with him on episode 99. But first, Forbes has some other news to announce. We are thrilled to announce that um, the Global Events Observer platform, which um, delivers the cutting-edge intelligence and the future Lloyd's program, the Lloyd's managing agencies, will now be using iSight data from this point on. We're very excited. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about maybe using a recent example like Hurricane Ida? You know, what do people get from um, MIS? We obviously, get the iSight data, but you had been doing that before iSight came along. What they get from MIS is customer insights. Because we know where the risk is in the world from Lloyds of London, the managing agencies, because we have every single line of risk on our system, we automate insight through exposure, claims, claims reinsurance if it's required, also have a feedback loop into the underwriting teams. That now happens automatically, ably led by Rosina Smith, who will be here at the end to, to take questions. 
Forbes, can we talk a little bit more about what you're doing with the London market? I know it was quite a significant relationship for you, and actually it offers an awful lot of opportunities to the market to get access to your information and actually also with your partners. It's wonderful that we're resourced this year in a way that we can buy the best-in-class data that is required to do the job well. The subscription model allows that to be done at a fraction of the cost. And to be at market with the business proposition that adds value to exposure teams by some 90-odd percent, claims lifecycle improvements by 40 percent, uh, and in one case, uh, a managing agency has told us that the loss ratio was improved by 2% on a, um, a, a cap for event. With regards to the marketplace, there's 52 managing agencies, 1,500 active users, um, and that includes the TPAs in, in the US, includes the adjusting community as well. So that gives a full spectrum capability from point of action on the grounds to creating a triage system uh, straight through payment and everything we've done is engineered uh, into the requirements of the future at Lloyd's. Forbes, thank you very much. Alan Jones co-founded Address Cloud with Mark Varley. Uh, we spoke to Mark for episode 114. There's a huge amount of data out there. We all know that. One of the difficult problems we have and certainly insurers have is getting that data on the desktops in their systems and getting that fast and accurately. That's one of the key things we've focused on with Address Cloud is, is operationalizing that swathe of data coming into the system, into the companies. So we've got over 20 different suppliers, 29 million different uh, addresses in the system, all constantly updated, going through a very fast API. One other thing you were talking about I find it quite interesting is you, you tap into the new build um, database. I'm not even going to try this acronym, NHBC. Um, that sounds like you're tapping into some really useful source data from the construction of the building. Can you just talk a little bit about what is that, how does that work, and how do you add value with whatever that is? This year alone, we, we brought in some new um, flood data, some new windstorm, and, and some new uh, subs data from Terraform and MetSwift guys. But this, this was also very different. NHBC is the home warranty service. They've been collecting that, that detailed information since 2006. There's over 2 million plots of property data that we access that enables us to talk about building age, type, construction type, foundations. And these are all real, real important questions that, that the, the underwriters, the actuaries want to know, and even to the point of knowing the type of constructor. So that's particularly important in the claims side. So we're the only company to bring that to the marketplace and meld that all in to our, our platform and our property data. Alan, thank you very much. We've been hearing a lot from Fathom recently, and no surprise given the growth and the work they are doing around the world on flood modelling. You can hear the full story on podcast 130, and co-founder Andy Smith joined us on stage. We build models of the whole planet from a hazard perspective. Um, we've built bespoke models of the UK, Japan, the US, and we build climate condition models there as well. But really the heart of what we do as an organisation is to build models that cover uh, the whole planet. Uh, and, and that's the aim both from a hazard and, and a cap modeling perspective as well. Okay. Well, you mentioned climate condition models. One of the things we're seeing this year, you know, most recently with COP26, but yeah, people are now being expected to make decisions and measurements around climate change and the risk of climate change much you know, in, in near time as opposed to yeah. some point in the future. Can you just very briefly explain what a climate condition model is? It's kind of in the name, right? So we, we are attempting to simulate what the hazard may look like in the future uh, if the climate is to change. 
Uh, I spent my PhD coupling climate models with flood models, so I know all about how difficult that is to do. Uh, frankly, in many areas, the climate models themselves really don't represent the processes that as flood modelers we care about. Lots of the things like um, convective rainfall, uh, extreme rainfall at local scales. The models don't represent that, so often you have to um, use something that's uh, kind of broadly called an application technique where you take the output of a core scale climate model uh, and modify it in some way to, to plug it into your flood model. The demand from the regulators now is to build climate condition models. Uh, the question from a modeler's perspective is, can we actually do that? Uh, and what's the most robust way to do that? Uh, and we don't really have the correct answer in many territories. So it's a very, very much an area of ongoing research. When you build models, do you adjust those over time periods to allow for different climate conditions or different views or different mm. increase in the potential frequency of floods as we're talking about in real time or near real time analytics? In terms of real-time uh, monitoring, with my modeling hat on, the thing that I'm interested in with real-time data is data with which to validate our models. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a modeler, I build flood models, and frankly, we don't have that many observations of uh, actual flood events, particularly short-duration ones. So um, flooding is a spatially complex peril. I think most people understand this. You can be like wet here, uh, dry over there. Um, so there's a spatial complexity to it. Uh, it's pretty simple to understand. And then there's also temporal complexity. So floods can be really long duration things. Uh, the Amazon can flood for months. And then you can have a small river channel that you hardly identify as a river channel that floods uh, in a very extreme way over a very short period of time. So those kinds of flash flood events, we don't have many observations of. Typically, they're very hard things to observe. Uh, satellite constellations like the Copernicus uh, European Space Agency satellite, it's it's uh, useful, but you know, overpass rates are like you know, a week or more. So the chance of you observing the peak, are uh, it's slim. So I'm excited by the work the ISI guys are doing because it should help us build better models because you stand a better chance of observing those, those smaller events. So we don't really validate them very well. What's the role of Fathom with regards to actually looking at real events and claims? We can take an image from ISI, for example, look at which event in our catalog is most similar to that, and, and kind of merge the two together. And, and that's what we've done at the moment with the Copernicus uh, Sentinel-1 satellite. And um, we do that for developing countries around the world. But our ability to do that, to merge these data, is going to improve a lot in the next few years, for sure. Do you want to just mention the, the way or one of the ways that people get access to, to Fathom? Do they actually yeah. want to get access to data? Uh, so distribution partners are really important for us. They were important in the beginning and they're really important now. Uh, we, we, we don't really have ambitions to build a standalone kind of cat modeling platforms, for example. Um, we don't want people to have to use a totally different platform for a single peril. So um, we partner with organizations, NASDAQ, Impact Forecasting, Exceedance, um, ImageCat. We're working with Global Parametrics and, and others. And if you feel like you could partner with us, then come and grab me. Great. Andy, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks. Robin Mertens picked up the microphone at this point. First up was Jonathan Hopper, Claims Manager, Atrium Underwriters. One of the things that really moved forward our, our use of real-time data was um, the wildfires from California from sort of 2018, Paradise in particular, you've seen it on the news, it was a, a truly catastrophic event. 
Um, and it gave us an opportunity to trial some of the things we've been looking at. We used a combination of, of real-time satellite data, fire perimeters from publicly available sources, combined those together to allow us to um, identify where to appoint adjusters and also to try and pay some claims before it even became necessary for an adjuster to, to visit the property. We saw this was beneficial in a number of ways. It, it reduced the, the claims cost side of things and it dramatically improved the speed. So we, we halved the settlement time for some of these claims um, and also reduced the amount of um, sort of distress that people had already gone, undergone a, a very, very traumatic experience had to, to sort of deal with because we were able to, to get checks in people's hands very early on. The second part of that was we used different payment platforms. So this is when we started a relationship with Vitesse and we were able to make um, almost instantaneous bank transfers um, directly to um, insureds to try and sort of fulfil that insurance contract. If I could just go back, because I'm no claims expert, I'm thinking to myself, what are you using that data for? Is it to establish that the losses occurred quicker so that you could pay out quicker, or actually is the way you use it slightly broader and smarter than that? Initially, um, it was more of a focusing on whether the property had been damaged. And because of the nature of the event with the wildfire, it, it does tend to be truly catastrophic. And so we were able to make those payments initially. But I think it is something that we've looked to develop into something a little bit smarter than that. We've looked at things like Xactimate from an adjusting perspective. It provides labor and material information that allows the adjustment to proceed in a fairly accurate and, and timely fashion. We now have uh, an API from our claim system, so there's reducing the double keying. The way we look at it is, is there are three distinct phases. It's, it's that claim notification, the claim assessment, and then um, the resolution, whatever that may be. Um, and those are the areas that we're focusing on. I know you're a claims man, so it's a very unfair question, but I'm sure that there are ways in which Atrium is using real-time data on the underwriting side, on the, on the front end of the business. Can you sort of share any details with us? One of the challenges is it's the same as the claims aspect to an extent is, is there's a loss of data. and I think people have touched on it already. It's trying to get it all in the right place um, at the right time. Um, so that's been one of the things we've, we've tried to address. So from the pre-buying side of things, we use a variety of data partners, people like you know, Verisk and, and Hazard Hub, to provide um, that information to allow more accurate pre-bind um, sort of underwriting. So one thing would be wildfires again trying to get more accurate understanding about where the vegetation is and where risks are that may elevate that and, and move it outside of our underwriting appetite. And then in terms of sort of going forward, innovation and data sources, you, Atrium, big active member of Lloyd's Lab, you've been a mentor there. Anything in Lloyd's Lab uh, take fancy? One thing that we're looking at that focuses on that claim notification and, and claim sort of assessment part is the use of AI, natural language processing, natural language understanding, you know, truly understanding what a first notification says. Is it a flooding claim? Is it a fire claim? And, and then sort of applying that to the policy. So you get these huge, long, complicated ISO-based policies, um, which are, you know, developed over an extended period of time. And we're, we're looking to try and identify key parts of, of those policies, um, which is, is an ongoing project. Lastly, is there a data set that you can't get that you'd like to get? One thing that often proves to be a challenge is hail. And it's not so much a paucity of data, it's the fact that there is so much data and it doesn't necessarily all agree. So one of the, the challenges with the hail claim is identifying when the hail occurred. You will end up having sort of three or four different data sources. They will all be from slightly different observation points. And that's a, a, a recurring problem, particularly in the hail hotspots, you know, sort of down in Texas and places like that. 
Um, so I think if there was a way of, of sort of synthesizing all that together and, and pulling up something that, in an ideal world, both sides could agree on, that would really move things along. Um, I suspect we'll come back to that in part two. Next up, Colin Mason, head of first party claims at Beasley. I'm not a claims man, so the first thing I need to know is what is a first party claim? First party claim as opposed to a third party claim is a claim that you might have yourself or if your business. So um, in my particular case at Beasley, and this doesn't trip off the tongue easily, it's marine, aviation, space, property, life accident and health, contingency, political risk, terrorism, reinsurance. So it's kind of it's those kind of business lines. You've been at Beasley for 17 years now. I can imagine that things have changed a lot in that in that time, and I'm sort of interested to explore what's going on now that wasn't going on 17 years ago and sort of get a perspective of what yes, your job looks uh, like. When I first started at Beasley, we were still using paper files delivered to our desk by a broker, which obviously then quickly turned into electronic claims files, which is, albeit it's been updated, it's still the system that we're using um, at, at Lloyd's at the moment. So things have changed slightly from a technology point of view. What hasn't changed, really, is the fact that our business and our industry is still about people. Good people with relevant expertise are, are making decisions that affect people's lives. I mean, that's what we do. Yeah, there's limits given the complexity of the claims you're handling, how much you can automate. There's a lot that you can automate within the process, but I, what I think the point I would make is it's not as easy as people tend to assume. Um, and the comparison between underwriting and claims is often, for me, quite an important one because I think it illustrates the challenge quite quite neatly. We've all seen the developments in relation to that, whether it's car insurance, house insurance. Um, but when it comes to it, when you turn that into a claims issue, someone buys their house insurance online because they can put all of that information in and get a price when their house burns down, they don't necessarily want you to just to send them a check, right? They want you to sort a hotel accommodation out. So they want you to rebuild their house. They want a bunch of flowers when they move back in. So, um, And there are lots of decisions that need to be taken along that process, which isn't as simple as how much is it worth um, and what price can I underwrite it at? Not that underwriting is simple, folks. It's not. But. This is all about real-time data sets. What real-time data sets do you use and then what do you use them for? We can underwrite uh, event cancellation risk with, with weather risk, for example. Um, and we can look at real-time data as to whether rain has occurred in the, in the location, and we can pay that claim quite, quite quickly. Um, or you can look at uh, temperature sensors in marine cargo for you know, vaccine shipments or food shipments, and if it goes above a certain temperature, then those claims can get paid automatically. But it relies on the technology being built in, in the first place. For us, when you're reverse engineering what data sets you need in order to deal with the products that you actually have, it becomes altogether more difficult. So we look in particular at, um, you know, at hurricane risk or natural catastrophe risk, and we can do quite a lot with data sets that we have as a result of satellite imagery. So we use McKinsey, for example, um, to tell us what has happened in a particular location where we have had a, you know, a natural catastrophe or a hurricane event, so we can assess quite quickly what the, what the value of those things are. And actually, that's turned into, before it even hits shore, how much is it going to cost us? Um, you know, give us five scenarios. Now, that never used to happen. People yeah. used to wait for a month until you knew what yeah. you were dealing with, but now people want to know that's the way that the world has moved. 
you're a London market man and you sat on the Lloyd's Claims Design Group. That was a cross-market group of claims professionals looking at how Lloyd's might improve the claims process going forward. Now, that's been disbanded. Um, why and, and sort of where is it left? You know, what next? So the future at Lloyd's is obviously not just about claims. It's about how we underwrite risk and a whole host of other aspects. But one of the focuses is what we do is a claims platform going forward because there's a recognition that we need to, to update and, and change it. Um, there's a lot of work that's been going on over the last five years in terms of what we need to do and how we need to do it. Uh, the claims design group really came out of the, the blueprint uh, vision and it was turning all of the work that had been done previously, all of the ideas and improvements that we needed to make into you know, real, um, this is what we need to achieve and how we need to do it. The reason it's, it's, it's changed is because that work's moving forward. It's moving forward with a joint uh, project with DXC to deliver what will ultimately be the new claims platform that we can work on, which will involve um, being able to share information much more quickly, being able to pay claims much more quickly, not just within Lloyds, but across the London market. That's one area that really intrigues me, which is this sort of syndicated market idea, the syndicated market. I mean, it has great attractions, of course, and that's why people come here, but are part of the inefficiencies that we have created by syndication and the complexities associated with having to share data with lots of different parties. In a world where we're talking about real-time data sets, do you procure those at the heart of Lloyd's and you let everybody in the syndicated world have them, or does everybody have to go and buy their own, or is there something clever that can be done? The biggest problem is it's not about data. When I think about data, I think about, you know, coded information that is in a, a cogent form. Actually, that's not what we get. What we get usually is is information that can often be you know, hundreds of pages long, expert reports, um, you know, news articles, or you know, when an oil platform comes in, falls into the sea, what you don't get is you know, five bits of spreadsheet data that tell you what to do. It doesn't happen like that. So um, sharing what is actually relatively complex information across the market does sometimes produce inefficiency. But what, what you do get in a syndicated market is you get the ability to use um, your colleagues' expertise. Mm. Um, and two heads are often better than one, and that's the, be- the real benefit of the syndicated market. So making sure we preserve that is important, but how we turn all of that information into data that's more easily shared um, is one of the challenges that we obviously have with complex risk. Colin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very really much. appreciate it. Gethin Jones of Skyline Partners was last on stage with us back in early 2020. That led to a partnership with Aegis that we discussed in podcast 146. If you've got something you want to talk to Gethin about, please contact him or us. Who knows? You could be one of our next future guests. So we use a lot of data sets, uh, as you can imagine. Um, all our products are data driven. Um, we do focus a lot on open source. So your ECMWF, your NOAAs, your NASA data and, and private data sets. So we partner with a number of companies that provide ex, expert insights. You need some real-time data sets and then you need some that are not real-time. I mean, what, what's the balance between the two and then, you know, how do you source them and so on? Not all data sets need to be real-time. I mean, we've got indexes that uh, are event-triggered. So we've got a, a terrorism product in the US. So if there's a shooting event, you need to know immediately that happens, you get paid. Um, but other products, you know, they're seasonal products, so like a heat stress over a season for dairy industry. You don't need real-time data for that. 
Um, you just need to monitor the data over the period, calculate it at the end. Um, but also, in addition, I mean, the, uh, quite an exciting area we're looking at is, is forecast data. So data that isn't real-time, it's, you know, based on forecasts in the future. Um, and using that data to, to create products and, and pay out ahead of the event, or even ensuring a forecast and, you know, the wrong decisions being made because the forecast's wrong. So there's lots of different ways of using these uh, different data sets for different purposes. What's the extent to which you design your parametric products around the data availability? In other words, oh, wow, there's a new data set, I could produce a new product. Or do you design the product and then work out what data you need to be able to support it? It's got to come from a demand from somewhere, an idea with somebody that's got somebody that's willing to purchase the product. Um, And then really looking at the most appropriate data sets that are available, not necessarily the best, because sometimes... You know, you, you might not need a five-meter resolution. You might be able to get open source at 30 meter and it be okay. So it's always got to be demand-led and then looking for the right data to create the product that meets the needs of the client. That's the approach we take, yeah. Is there a data source that you would like that you can't get? <laughs> Is there a data source that you would be able to build a product around if only you could get your hands on it? I would say highly localized data is tough. You know, there's a lot of climatic data out there, weather data, I mean, incident data, you know, with police databases, et cetera, but highly localized data, hail came up earlier. That's a key one. We, we, we get a lot of requests for hail, and it's, you know, there are some solutions out there, but you need a device, you need to put it on site, it comes with cost, you know, the improvement of these satellite, you know, solutions uh, and the technology is going to really help with some of these localized risks. Gethin, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Robert. That's us all done. Don't forget to contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us. Hello at instec.london or take a look at the website www.instec.london if you want to find out what you're up to. And if you feel there is something missing in your knowledge about what is happening in insurance technology, or maybe you just want the world to know what you're up to and would like our help, we might just be able to help. Mm-hmm.